Hey guys, this is Adam with the Garage Gym Experiment podcast. On today's episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Seb Ostrowitz. If you don't know who Seb is, he is the founder of his company, Weightlifting House, a company that creates media content through podcasts and a YouTube channel. They provide weightlifting education through their coaches only and athletes only portals. Through Weightlifting House Store, you can find equipment made by and for the Olympic weightlifting community, along with apparel and gym banners. And Seb just so happened to author two books. One is a weightlifting historian's guide to the greatest Sinclairs of all time. And the other is the Penlay method, which is everything Seb learned from coach Glenn Penlay before he passed. Seb's story started when he finished school and left with a passion for a sport that he now builds his career around. After we talk about his company, Seb gives us a rundown of what is going on in the sport of Olympic weightlifting currently and the fate of weightlifting in the Olympics. Enjoy. Hey guys, and welcome to the Garage Gym Experiment podcast. My name is Adam, and today I'm joined all the way in the UK by the founder of Weightlifting House, the people's voice, Seb Ostrovitz. Seb, what's going on, man? Yeah, not a whole lot. Uh, I'm actually, I've only been back in the office for two days, took a really long break after the world championships in Tashkent. So I'm only kind of gradually getting back into the grind of creating content and, and, and growing the business, I suppose. Awesome. And what a world championship too. Mm-hmm. You saw some, uh, some big lifts, huh? Yeah. I mean, the, the final session in itself, I'm actually, before I did this, I was writing up the script for the video of Lasher, his final training session. He obviously went on to hit the heaviest total of all time, heaviest snatch now by nine kilos over anybody else. And a week prior, he hit a huge training hall session. So I was just sort of actually working on that right before jumping on this. Awesome. What was it like in the training hall at Worlds? Um, it's my favorite thing, I think. Um, I, I think I like the training hall the most, followed by the back room. And then actually the competition platform for me is the least interesting thing. It's just, you know, it, it's sort of playing out what you already know is going to happen to some degree. But in the training hall, you get to see the, the characters of the athletes. You get to see their interactions with the coaches. You get to see the inter-team and intra-team dynamics. Um, a lot more, if you're sort of a fan of the sport and the athletes, for me, that, that training hall is far more interesting than when an athlete just walks onto the platform, hits the lift and leaves. So that's where, yeah, that's where I get a lot of my um, interest and then content from. Yeah, you actually had some pretty cool interactions with some of the lifters too, which is, uh, mm-hmm. I'm sure is pretty cool. Yeah, that was, the, I think, first time, because really, I went to the World Championships in 2019, did a few competitions, and then lockdown hit. And then it was during lockdown, I needed to find out what to do for content because we couldn't go and get more content. So I was started to put my face on YouTube. Um, and so none of the athletes at previous competitions knew who I was when I was filming them. So this was actually the first time I went to a competition training hall where an athlete would look at me and be like, oh, that's the guy from Weightlifting House. And so that's why I ended up getting these interactions, which I think only add to the um to the videos because it makes the people watching feel like oh we're right in there like we're in the center of weightlifting right now we're fist bumping lasher and then we're doing you know filming quotient chin sort of thing so it's, it's it works out quite well i think yeah that's awesome cool all right well, i want to talk to you about your company about weightlifting house let's start there um so you bump into somebody you say you know i'm i run this company i, I founded it it's weightlifting house and they say oh that's cool what do you guys do how do you answer that question um it used to be my girlfriend's friends asking me, what do you do? That was when I'd, I'd have this question. Um, I used to say a lot of things. Now I say that we are an, a weightlifting equipment company that does media. Or I say we're a weightlifting media company that does equipment. 
it kind of depends which which way I'm feeling. But um, yeah, we provide as much media as possible for the sport in every form that you can produce media. Um, and we are growing a product line of, of the accessories that you would need to, to compete in weightlifting. That's basically what we do. And that, that will fund then more and more content and more and more high level content. Yeah. And then, so weightlifting house is this, this umbrella, everything underneath it. I mean, there's, there's the podcast, there's their, your store, which has the equipment and all that. Um, I mean, you authored a book, um, coaches only athletes only. What else am I missing? Um, I guess the YouTube, the, I mean, like we're on, we're in Amazon, that sort of thing. Um, expanding into various different Amazon stores, um, in different continents, it's easier to fulfill orders, but yeah, that's basically it. It's, it's podcast, YouTube, Instagram as our main sort of media outlets. Uh, and then it's, we have warehouses in the UK where I'm at right now, USA, and then fulfillment centers elsewhere just to help package and ship things. Um, that's, that's basically it. Yeah. Awesome. I want to get to like the equipment and you know, Mm -hmm. how you, uh, quality control, like your pieces going out and all that other stuff. But before I do, um, let's get to the birth story. Okay. So, um, when did it all start? How did it all start? What was the original idea? So weightlifting house, the birth story. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So I guess it started off, I, I got into weightlifting, um, I, I always liked going to the gym. Then I got into rowing, which was, you know, you get quite obsessed by rowing, but realized how awful a sport it was and how painful it was. Uh, and so when I quit that, I was kind of spat out into being used to training twice a day and needing some other outlet. And that's how I got into weightlifting. Um, started weightlifting, got okay. Uh, ended up, well, I found myself sort of getting other people into weightlifting, brought them all into a house of weightlifters um, six of us, hence weightlifting house. So when we were training there at university, I basically said we need to get a YouTube channel and vlog this stuff because if I wasn't living here, I would I would wish I was, and I would wish I was seeing what was happening. And we did a few videos, and they weren't particularly good, but they were fun for us to do at least. Um, and that was my final year at university, and kind of recognised that I needed a um, I needed a pathway into weightlifting because I wasn't going to be able to just sit at a desk, which is because I'm currently sat at a desk and I spend most of my time now sat at a desk, but at least it's doing good things. Um, and so I wanted to get into the world of weightlifting. So I actually sent an email to Glenn Pendley, who a lot of your listeners may well know because he his reach was far beyond the weightlifting world, just into general essence. He was Pendley Rose and that sort of stuff and his equipment, obviously. Um, and eventually he kind of said, yeah, come over to the USA with your friends, um, with your house of weightlifters and let's do a training camp. Went there, set that up. Uh, and then kind of said to myself, okay, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna leave this training camp without something else set up. Like this is to, to, he was by far the most, well, he's the only person in weightlifting I'd really ever met. I'd never had a coach. It was just me and my friends training. Um, and so I said to him, Glenn, come to the UK. I'll set up a seminar tour for you. You can sort of revamp your name. He'd been in a, he'd had his coma and he was sort of getting back into you know, building his profile. So I was like, come to the UK, I'll sort that out for you. And he agreed. Um, a funny story, he then like about a week before flying over, not a week, a month, he said, Seb, can I just confirm that when I come here, you can drive me to all of these places? And I was like, yeah, yeah, of course, no problem. 
and then hung up the phone and instantly called up a driving school and was like, I need to learn how to drive really quickly. Spent all my money on buying a car. But he came, we did the tour, it was a great success. And he said to me, do you want to do a podcast together? Um, because I was maybe the only person who could talk about weightlifting as like enthusiastically as he could. And that, for me, that, at that point, that was like a dream country. So I said, yes, let's do it. Um, he told me to create a website. So I created weightliftinghouse.com after deliberating on the weightlifting platform, which I thought was clever, but no one else seemed to think that was good. Um, and yeah, from there, I, I basically then realized that that was like my foot in the door of weightlifting. People started to listen to me because of Glenn. So he gave me for sure that initial boost. And then gradually I started doing fewer podcasts with Glenn and started bringing on other people to talk to athletes and coaches, which gave me this reputation of being, um, I guess someone through whom you can gain access into the weightlifting world. Um, sold a t-shirt through pre-orders cause I had no money. Um, to basically just designed it, put it up and I was like, who wants this? And somehow I still don't know how so many people wanted it. I sold like 120 of these t-shirts which for an Instagram account of like 7,000 followers at the time is ridiculous. Um, so took everybody's money, then went and made the t-shirts, sent them out. And then with the money I had, did a second t-shirt. And again, so it was basically just literally starting with nothing, just starting with people giving me the money for the first product. And then the biggest jump was probably deciding, okay, I'm going to do a barbell, which makes no sense. But I sort of had Glenn's, um, knowledge i suppose like he knew somebody who could make bars well and he asked me if i wanted to do them for his brand and i said yes i'll be a european distributor in my bedroom um and then as he was designing them i basically had a chat with him i said glenn actually i want them to be under my brand and i want you to be my usa distributor and it was an awkward conversation but we had it and eventually he came out and said yeah that's fine um so for the next few years i just had barbells in my bedroom like, you know, 50 bars, like on my bed, just way too much weight for my house to handle. Um, and that was it. I guess that, that was how we got into the equipment industry was just through the bars. Yeah. That's awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I, I guess I didn't really like weightlifting house. Um, I just <laughs> didn't really realize you guys were in a house and just yeah, house of weightlifters. Yeah. yeah. It was as simple as that. And <laughs> I'm really brilliant. pleased because it is actually quite a nice name. I like it a lot. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. And then yeah. just, I mean, taking something, you're leaving university. Um, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, it's time to like start, start working, but you're just so yeah. passionate about weightlifting. So that's going to be what I do. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I was working in a gym at the time, like just part-time, um, at first at the university. And while I was there, I would just, go onto my laptop, write blog posts, write weightlifting news and post it and just try and build the website side of things. And then I started working at a CrossFit gym as a weightlifting coach. But again, I'd go home and I'd record podcasts and I would try and sell barbells and that sort of thing. So I, for the first couple of years, I had something to sort of um, keep me going. It wasn't much, but it was enough to buy food just about and pay rent. Um, and then everything that was going on with the barbells and the t-shirts and then eventually tape and straps and stuff that was just funding itself. Yeah. Um, and then I was going to ask, and I think you already answered it, but maybe you could, um, elaborate mm -hmm. on it a little bit. Um, you, you get into the barbells and you, <laughs> you use, uh, Glenn's connection. Yeah. Um, and then 
coming up with the specs and um, you know uh, the the spin and the quality control. Uh, mm-hmm. Where are your barbells manufactured? Um, we've had a few different places where we've had our barbells manufactured. The first place was in China, uh-huh. um, and that was Glenn's Connection. And it turned out actually that those people make a really, really good barbell. Um, the problem is dealing with them was very difficult. Um, and they're not going to listen to this, so that's fine. Um, but we had so many problems just in delays and them telling us that they'd shipped them and they hadn't, or suddenly shipping prices went up. All the things that maybe I should have assumed were going to be a, a problem in growing the equipment company. I just thought it was going to be as simple as paying. Uh, and then the bars turn up. But we'd had a load of different barbells come over to actually ship them to Kansas, where Glenn was living at the time. I flew over there, and then it, it was kind of the most um, natural way of testing bars. We had basically 15 weightlifters fly out for a tra- training camp for two weeks, training three times a day, constantly shifting bars at the start. And then very quickly, you would work out, they would come in and the first person uh, or the strongest person would grab the bar that they liked the most. Um, and it actually happened that that was the one that I was hoping that we were going to end up using. And then that was the weightlifting house bar that we ended up going with. So that's kind of how we ended up testing which of these do weightlifters feel like they can train on if they need to train multiple times a day without tearing their hands up, uh, that spins well. Um, and also it just happened to be like a, a really nice bar, like 10 needle bearing, 210 KPSI. It just felt nice. Um, but that's kind of how we decided at the start, which bar to go with. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. I, I remember you guys talking about the, uh, the seminars and stuff like that, like going and staying yeah. at, um, <laughs> um, people's houses yeah, yeah glenn's place and uh yeah training three times a day and living like a yeah there. glenn's place was crazy yeah, yeah it was just like um sleeping on the floor not a lot like honestly like just cockroaches and like just yeah not no, that was before we were in his house that was when we would stay in these kind of like i don't know what you call them i guess you have them in the usa when you go to a small town and loads of truckers go through and they need somewhere very cheap to stop and we just basically stayed there okay. um and it was yeah, it was not great, but the the atmosphere was amazing. It, yeah. yeah, it was the great. training atmosphere. Yeah, yeah, that's phenomenal. awesome. Yeah. yeah, and it's cool. Like, um, so with doing these podcasts, we recently talked to the owner of a popular equipment company. I don't know if you guys can get them in the UK. Uh, rep, equipment rep company, or just rep fitness. It's just like rep that. rep fitness. Yeah, I, I think I know of them. Yeah, yeah, we had the um the founder of Rep on, and he <laughs> started with um affiliate stuff um pushing traffic and things like that and he actually the uh, the idea came to him to start his own company Mm -hmm. from um pushing uh traffic to um um penlay okay and i remember there were lots sorry go on no yeah i just remember uh when glenn was on with you one time or maybe it was on with with John North. I don't remember, but he was very, <laughs> he was very bitter about, um, his business partner who he was working yeah. with, who was pushing the equipment and mm-hmm. to hear rep saying that they were trying to reach out to Penley, like, Hey, you should probably do things like this. And then to hear him being frustrated with things being working, it was right. just like this connection coming together. Yeah. It was interesting. Yeah. I think there are two ways to kind of go about the equipment thing, because you can either do it as as he did it from rep fitness where, and this, this is, I, I don't know how big an American gym shark is, but it's huge in the UK. Um, and it's actually a few miles down the road. 
Um, and they basically started by, let's just get as much traffic as we can, build affiliate links, and then make a tiny commission of every sale that we sell that we get for another customer, basically. Um, and then I, I, I don't have the technical ability to do that. Like driving traffic is not something that I, I don't really know anything about SEO. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had like the ability to just talk about weightlifting and then get traffic that way. And then I initially started with an affiliate link as well. So I would just put on the website, like, um, links to rogue fitness and be like, Oh, I'll just try and get a cut of their shoes that they sell or the bars that they sell and that sort of thing. Yeah. And then I think everybody eventually gets to the point where you're like, okay, I've got, you know, at the start, 10,000 people a month watching me and then and then a hundred thousand and then maybe a million and you're like i could just have the product myself because people already trust me because they listen to me talk about weightlifting they know i like it uh they know i'm not an idiot or like a bad person necessarily so instead of just linking out to other people's products and kind of sieving some profit off the top it's like let's just try and make our own products and i think that's quite a, that's a nice way to do it rather than going straight in with like i'm going to build an equipment company when not like you have to have so much money up front to do that and just be like, I'm going to start an equipment company and people are just going to buy from me because I run ads because I've got the money to do so. And I'm going to sponsor events. It's just, I mean, fair play to people who do it. It's amazing. But I think being content driven first and foremost definitely helps. Yeah. And there are some horror stories with that. These people who are saying, I'm just going to start an uh, equipment company yeah. because there are um, um, import places in China who, who will tell you like, Hey, uh, we have, um, you know, kettlebells here. We have, we have plates here and we'll throw your label on them and we'll send them. And you probably get that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And people (laughs) jump onto that. They get a shipment container. You can't return it. You can't get your money back. And the stuff turns out inconsistent or, I mean, there's just been some, some bad stories. So. Yeah. I mean, we, we even, we've had bad stories of like our first round of straps that we sold. Um, we just didn't get, they just didn't ship them to us. And like, we'd spent, it's not, it's not a lot in the grand scheme of like the business or definitely compared to like your bigger equipment companies, but it was one of our first products. I probably set, spent something like five to 10 grand, something like that, which was like a really meaningful amount of money to me. And they just didn't turn up and I kept emailing them. And then eventually they just stopped replying. And it's like, literally, what can you do? Like any legal fees are going to cost way more than that. And you can't reach out to anyone. So like, it's just, yeah, you learn from that point that one of the, one of the best ways of building uh, an equipment company is actually just building a relationship with the manufacturers, such a better way of doing things like get them on WhatsApp, chat to them. Like I had multiple of like our our manufacturers message me on Christmas and New Year's saying, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year's. It's like that, that's a nice thing to get from a, from someone you're working with rather than someone just, you know, basically wanting their money and, and lowering the quality of the the product over time which is which does happen right yeah and and speaking of quality um Mm -hmm. like what is it that you think uh weightlifting house does better or does apart from other equipment companies you kind of touched on some of this but maybe expanding a little bit i think there are very few in fact there's only one other equipment company that is just weightlifting um and they don't do bars and plates they just do the accessories and they do it really well um and so one of the things that sets us apart is just the fact that we are one of two people who only focus on weightlifting then i think there's the fact that 
it's very clear that we are by far the most passionate company about weightlifting, which makes a huge difference when you're just trying to grow a brand and people want to, they want to know, like, I'm going to wear straps. The truth is a lot of straps are very similar. Um, our most recent straps that we have, which I wish I had a pair here, are different to all other straps because we've, we decided, okay, we're going to make these slightly different. We're going to have some nice, like 3d, in fact, I'm being handed a pair now. Um, 3d rubber like logo on them we're going to add a little bit of padding uh so you see that we've got this like nice 3d logo and then we've added this neoprene padding on the inside um which nobody else does in weightlifting but but ultimately a strap is a strap to some degree um and it's very hard to differentiate differentiate yourself with how good are these straps going to be um but having that you know, years and years of content you've put out that just shows your passion and your investment in the sport and your love of the sport. Then when people think I want some straps, they think, oh, I want weightlifting house straps because weightlifting house is the central point of weightlifting. People, uh, the people there are obsessed with the sport. They want the best for the sport. I want to be a part of that love and energy for the sport. And I, I honestly, I think as, as much as I love our equipment and the products that we do, and I love them more and more because we're getting better at making them, I didn't used to love everything that we did, but I, I certainly do now. Um, as much as I love the actual, the way we make it, I much prefer the fact that people identify with the story of us just loving weightlifting and being that central point in the sport. And I think it's that that sets us apart more than, oh, these straps are great. It's the fact that they're great, but they're tied to, um, they're tied to, yeah, enthusiasm for the snatch and the clean jerk. Yeah. The, the snatch, the clean and jerk, and just the brand in general. Like yeah. when, uh, when I think weightlifting your, um, your intro to your podcast, that, that music yeah. pops into my head. Da, da, da. Right. Right. Yeah. I would, um, <laughs> I'd put those on in long drives and, uh, nice. my wife would be like, uh, she's like, Oh, I love the intro song. <laughs> you start talking about like historians and like you being a historian yeah, yeah. talking about weightlifters. She's like, I don't follow any of this. No. <laughs> it's okay, babe. It's fine. Yeah. It's a niche language to understand, but yeah. if you understand that it, it's really nice language. <laughs> yeah. um, what was it like uh, authoring the book? So um, just a quick intro to the book for people who don't know. Um, yeah. You want to give them a quick intro? So and then I, Yeah. So I've, I've actually done two books. The first one was this one which I do actually have with me, the greatest weightlifters yeah, of all time. That's what I'm thinking. Then the second one was the Glen Pente method. Oh, okay. Um, so this one, the greatest weightlifters of all time, was kind of, in many ways, the precursor to weightlifting house becoming a business. So I, I had started doing a podcast on a Friday. I, I did a few episodes a week, but on a Friday, I would count down the greatest weightlifters ever um, by Sinclair, which is just for the weightlifters out there, they know what that is. If you're a powerlifter, it's basically like Wilkes. It's just a, it's a coefficient that allows you to compare athletes across weight categories. So I would count them down and talk about their stories and, and their, their lives and, you know, their biggest lifts uh, in a way that there just wasn't, I mean, there literally wasn't anything that did that anywhere. Uh, and a guy reached out to me called Dan, who had left his job as like coder. Um, he'd been in the tech world, software world, and had fallen in love with weightlifting and decided he was going to start a weightlifting publishing company. So he contacted me and said, do you want to turn this into a book? And I said, yes, absolutely. Cause that, that's really cool. Um, and so we worked together. I, for the podcast, I'd written everything already. So it just had say to that be, was scripted, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. So it had to be turned from, you know, 
what makes sense when you're speaking to what would make sense when you read it, but not, not too much. Um, and I worked with him and he had a really good relationship out of it. The hardest part by far was getting the photos and, and paying for the photos because we didn't have, I, neither of us had any money, so, but we managed to get the photos, um, which did end up costing a fair bit, but it was worth it in the long run just because it make, makes the book far better to have these huge photos of Pizarenko, you know, Max Gossip and that sort of stuff in it. Um, and it was right after that book was published that he basically said to me, Dan said to me, I can see that weightlifting house is growing, but you need someone who can help with um, the logistical side of things, the legal side of things, all of that sort of stuff. Uh, and so I'd like to give you an offer. So he basically offered to be involved in the business. Um, and I just, I, I would say naively, but in retrospect, it was easily the best decision I ever made for weightlifting house. I just said, yes, let's do it. Like you're in now. Uh, and so he just went full time, literally full time into weightlifting house. He he did actually do a little bit of educational work for Aleko at the time, which he, it's kind of funny that Aleko were basically paying him a good amount to do like a little bit of education for them so that he could build a company that now Aleko won't work with <laughs> because they recognize that we do similar things to them. Um, but yeah, so he, he then came on and then we did a similar process with the Glenn Pendley book. You know, after Glenn died, I recognized that I probably understood his methods and system of weightlifting better than anyone in the world because I'd, I'd followed it. And then I'd had more direct conversations about programming with him. We'd run a team together. We'd done the podcast together, all of these sorts of things. So then I spent the first nine months of lockdown. Uh, the only thing I did was write. And by far, that's the better in terms of like, you read and you go, oh, that's written well. That's by far the better of the two books. But obviously it's only interesting if you love weightlifting and you want to understand programming. And, and it goes a little bit into like, you know, this happened in Glenn's childhood that made him think about this political system, which is why he is more like this style of training. Because he realized that in weightlifting, a lot of training styles are actually linked to the, the, the politics of the country that they're in. Like Soviet training is way more controlled it's way more planned. It makes sense. But then you go to like uh, the USA and you can't really control athletes that much. You have to build in RP, RIR, uh, all of these sorts of things because your athletes are able to go away and, and stay out late. But in the Soviet Union, you could do that. So there's a little bit of that in it, which makes it interesting. But the Glenn Penley method is, yeah, that's the, the programming book. And then the greatest weightlifters of all time is just a, a history storybook of weightlifting, basically. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I would listen to all of your um, the the greatest <laughs> countdowns, and I didn't know half those names or right. But you, you listen anyway. Nor did I, honestly, at the start. I, I didn't know them at all. Yeah, I mean, that's I, knew, awesome. I knew a few, but a lot of them I had never heard of. Yeah, yeah. I was just waiting. Pocket Hercules. I know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I knew him. Yeah. yeah, I was waiting for him as well. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um. So, <clears throat> I want to talk about uh products. Um. Any yeah. plans on bringing a new product to market? Yeah. Awesome. Um, Do you want to share? Can you share? I, so I can certainly share some things in that it's pretty obvious. We've got straps, wraps, tape, belt. We don't have anything that goes around someone's knee. Oh, so yeah. um, I have here. Uh, I shouldn't show them. No. Uh, so we, we, don't, we don't do our videos. I'm not so gonna... Maybe you just show me. I'm just kidding. Don't yeah. <laughs> um, so we're, we're, we're working on these sleeves at the moment. Cool. Um, 
we've got everything except the sizing kind of down, which sounds like a lot, but it's basically when it comes and it says large, it doesn't actually fit. It's too small. So we, we, we need to work on making the sizing right. But the actual sleeve itself seems really nice. So that's something that we're, we're going to be doing this year. Um, I mean, it, we want to get to the point, obviously, where we have multiple styles and colorways of knee sleeves and wraps and straps and belts and uh, knee wraps uh, and, and all of these things. Um, it's just when you've had no, you know, we have like, we never had investment or anything like that. So it's, it's just organic growth and it's not a quick way to do it, but it's a good way to do it and maintain ownership of everything. So things are a little slower, but we are, that's the way we're going on, on the, on the accessory front. It's not too difficult to predict what we're going to do there. Um, we definitely want to move more into the, uh, clothing side of things, but we do clothing. We sell a surprising amount of t-shirts. I'm always amazed at how many weightlifters will buy a t-shirt. Um, I guess they just want to have something that links them to a group of people when they're out and about that says like, I'm a weightlifter or when they go to the, the gym, it says I'm a weightlifting house person. So I guess that makes sense, but doing that in a way more, um, quality way basically so not just t-shirts but you know things that would go on your lower half perhaps that sort of thing um and then the most exciting but sudden thing i, I won't talk about but i will tell you afterwards because it's probably something we could do about it together okay. um and then eventually we're going to really get back into the plates but the plates were the most difficult product we've ever done um i'm glad we did them it was interesting to see how many people were willing to buy plates from us which was really good but the whole, the logistical side of plates is unbelievably difficult. Just the, the extra costs that are involved. Um, if things get, especially cause like we, you know, we ship from the UK to like Poland or Denmark and it's going across so many borders or from, you know, I'm here, but we have plates being shipped from a state in the USA to another state in the USA or into Canada. And just all of the paperwork that's involved, which fortunately I don't do anymore. I don't really touch any of that stuff, but still it's a pain for everybody else. And it's so one day we'll get back into that, but we need a, a kind of a stronger logistical foundation, I think, to really breach the, the plate side of things again. Yeah. You, you don't really think about like um, trucks moving across state lines and way stations. No. And it's just, yeah, mm -hmm. you just saying that kind of gives me a headache. Yeah, I, I, we brought them out at, a, at the best time to sell equipment because we brought them out during the pandemic and everybody wanted a home gym. But also it was the worst time to bring them out because we did them on pre-order because we didn't have the, the capital up front basically to do it because it's that's a lot of money to launch plates. Um, so then people paid and then not only were, you know, shipping container prices went up and reduced and that's still ongoing. Um, then there was obviously all of the COVID stuff that slowed a lot of passage of products across borders down. And then Brexit happened where we left the EU, which suddenly meant that everybody who bought products in, in Europe um, would have to pay a lot of money to get the plates that they'd already paid for, which obviously we didn't make the pay. We, we took the hit on that. Um, but it basically ended up that everything got delayed and and everybody's really nice about it because they knew that the global situation was causing this more so than our, you know, uh, lack of abilities. Um, but we ended up taking such a hit on it that we just thought this is too much. Um, 
So we'll come back to it at some point, because obviously it's, it's logical that it goes with the bars and we like selling the bars, but there are easier things to bring out. And also it's more, I love knee sleeves and wrist straps and straps. Like as a weightlifter, if for Christmas or my birthday, someone bought me knee sleeves, it was like, this is the greatest thing ever. The only thing that would beat that would be like shoes or a barbell, but plates weren't the thing. I think it's because you don't have your hands on the plates when you lift. The, the knee sleeves are wrapped around you. The wrist straps are on you. The thumb tapes on your thumbs, the bars in your hand, but the plates to some degree, you need quality plates, but they're not as like intimate. It's a weird word, but they're almost like not as intimate a, a, an object. So yeah. they're less, they're less exciting for me, but there's no way that we won't sell them one day again, but now is not the time for them. <laughs> yeah. Um, you, you had mentioned apparel in there and, and t-shirts mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, Amazing logo. So amazing that you go to Worlds and you see it being pushed without your um, yeah, that was a weird without one. your authorization. Yeah. Can you give us a quick story? Yeah. So at the World Championships in the training hall, um, and then uh, Nat and Gregor, who run Hook Grip and All Things Gym, the three of us are basically there, or the three companies are there filming in the training hall. And then one of them said to me, oh, Seb, did you... I guess when he struck up a deal with the IWF International Weight Federation to sell your products. And I was like, no, but that sounds like a good idea. He was like, really? Because they're selling your products. And I, I just, I totally assumed he was joking. I was like, you know, good one. Haha. Um, and he kept pushing it. I was like, how, like where and how many? And he was like, um, there's at least a hundred t-shirts and there's hoodies and stuff. And I was like, okay, so Nick, who I was with, had to go, who works with me, he's here now. He had to go and film the competition, so he'd left. I grabbed Will from Barbell Stories, who also does like media for USA Weightlifting. And I was like, hey, can you just bring your camera and film me like going up to this shop or stand? I didn't even know what it was going to be. Finding the Weightlifting House fake products and um, confronting whoever it is about them. And he like leapt at it because he really wanted to see how awkward a moment this is going to be for someone like me who's not particularly confrontational having to deal with this. Um, but I ended up putting a little bit of it up on the YouTube video, but I've got like the whole like five minute interaction, which is really awkward. But basically we got there and yeah, there were just t-shirts and hoodies printed on fake Nike products, um, back, literally just bags of it all. And, and not printed nicely. That was the problem. Like, you know, the barbell, We've got like two logos that we mainly use. This one, like it would get cut off like there. Saw that. So, yeah, the, the pocket for the hoodie like chops it off. It got in the way. Yeah. Um, and the guy was like, okay, well, I'll, you know, he gradually dawned on him who I was and I owned Weightlifting House. And he went very red and got very nervous and was like, here, have this hoodie as an apology. And I was like, I don't need the hoodie. Like I own like everything that you're trying to sell now is like mine. Like this is mine. And in the end, I thought like, I don't actually want this. To, I am going to stop him selling it, but I don't want it. Like I don't, I don't need it myself. But what I do want is all the other stuff that he's selling, which is also probably fake, but like IWF t-shirts and that stuff. So I just grabbed loads of t-shirts. I was like, these are for us now. We're having these. And then by the end of the day, he'd gotten rid of everything, weightlifting house and, um, it never came back for the remainder of like the, probably 10 days after that. That was none of it. I don't know where it's gone. That's the only issue. Like I'm guessing he's just going to give it away to people. Cool. You think he'll sell it? Yeah. So maybe he'll sell it. I don't know. Well, yeah, you're, um, you're confronting him and you're, you're telling him this, like, that's me. 
And he's like, yeah. oh, you want to buy it? And I was yeah, like, yeah, oh yeah. man, that has to be so frustrating. And just awkward so because like, I didn't like that situation at all. He clearly also didn't, but he also didn't necessarily know what I was saying. And I didn't really know what he was saying. Yeah. So there was like this, there was a language barrier, a cultural barrier, and just the fact that he was doing something which is probably illegal. It just made it, the whole no, thing it's illegal. Awkward. It's not but probably it, illegal. That's illegal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it it was it was interesting for two reasons. One, it was funny that pe- like we saw a couple of people walking around with the stuff on. So people thought to themselves, "I'm going to buy that." The, a shame was that it, one one of those people was called Manassian, who's got the second heaviest snatch of all time, walking around in a fake weightlifting house top after <laughs> I'd just given him a real weightlifting house top, which okay. he didn't wear because <laughs> he wore the hood. Well, he might have done, but he wore the hoodie, the fake hoodie over the top. But then also it was just to some degree it was um it's not quite the right word but it almost is like flattering that someone would see our brand as being worthwhile copying because they know they can make money off it so like you know i was pleased that it happened in many ways because the downside was very small i think people ended up buying more t-shirts in protest of the fact that this guy was trying to steal them from us so what like when i mentioned on the youtube video we had to load more t-shirt sales come through so like it worked out it was a it was a, it was a little publicity stunt we got like every well i didn't ask for it but every meme page in weightlifting on instagram was posting about it um so <laughs> it was quite good in the end I think. yeah that's yeah awesome. yeah i want to ask you who your ideal buyer is your target audience obviously your weightlifting house you're just for weightlifters but like are you shooting for clubs club members uh garage lifters like who are you really aimed at uh, so the our mission statement started out as weightlifting house brings the sport of weightlifting closer to its fans. So that was t- targeted at fans of weightlifting. Uh-huh. And then we've now grown that out to weightlifting house brings the sport of weightlifting closer to its fans, athletes, and coaches, because we see them as three separate groups that need three separate things. So for the, f- and it's not necessarily even like selling products. It's just what do fans of the sport want? They want to see backstage. They want to see what goes up in the warm-up room. They want interviews. They want content. So we produce loads of content for them. What the athletes want, they want good knee sleeves that they identify with. They want, you know, they want the equipment side of things. What do coaches want? Well, not only do they want education, which we now give in the coaches' only conferences that we do, but they also want maybe the ability to wholesale products to their athletes to make money. So instead of just selling thumb tape to athletes, why don't we sell bigger boxes of thumb tapes to coaches that they can sell for the price that we would sell them to their athletes who are already going out and buying the thumb tape anyway. So like, how can we allow a coach to make an extra couple hundred dollars a month, just sell our thumb tape and that sort of thing. Uh, and then obviously the coaches end up buying all the bars and the plates, but so do the gym, the garage gym people. And we actually found that the people who probably, I probably are our biggest fans are garage gym lifters because not only were we there with bars and plates during the pandemic when they needed it, but we had, you know, we had the flags that say this is a weightlifting house. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the people who train in gyms, they control what they listen to. And so many of the people who listen to the podcast or watch the videos, they do it almost to feel like they have a, a training partner or somebody there who is also obsessed with weightlifting while they're training because they're not in a gym doing it. And that was how it was for me when I started, you know, I was the only weightlifter. Then a few others turned up, but in the holidays when I'd go home and I'd go to a normal gym, I would just listen to John North and Glenn Penley talking on their podcast the whole time. 
so that it was like I was trading and I had other weightlifters around me. And I think we gave a lot of garage weightlifters that same feeling. So garage weightlifters in many ways are like our most hardcore followers, but we certainly like break down everyone involved in weightlifting into the groups of fans, athletes, and coaches and make sure we give each of them like direct focus. Yeah. And obviously we are garage gym experiment. Um, I'm sitting in my basement gym right now. Uh, Uh, but, but I do have a a decent sized garage. What are garages like in the UK? Are they all these tiny little picture cars? Yeah. Yeah. Very small. (laughs) Yeah. It's definitely a bigger thing in the USA. Yeah. Um, my, one of my best friends, he's got, I mean, he, he's been able to, he's got a garage, doesn't put the car in it. He's got a platform squat rack, um, glue ham and some like dumbbells or something, but it's pokey, but it, it works, but you couldn't have two platforms in there and you couldn't have, two, you can have more than two people training in there. Um, but that's quite lucky. Like most houses in the UK do not come with a carriage. Um, which is why I think you see uh, during lockdown, a lot of the American weightlifters were in garage gyms training. A lot of the UK lifters, there are videos of them in like their living rooms or their yeah. conservatories or, or their patio. And they would just store it inside and roll it out and lift outside on some wooden boards or something. Uh, so there's definitely a difference there. I think in the UK, we just have a little bit less space. We're probably a little bit more packed in, especially in the cities. Um, and houses aren't built as big, I don't think. Who, who was that lifter who's like snatching like 160 in his kitchen? Do you remember oh, that? Uh, Igor Klimanov, <laughs> ex-Russian weightlifter, got popped and now it's just a, a Instagram like weightlifting thought basically. And he just posts, yeah, like 160 snatches in like a two by one meter kitchen. It's terrifying, but you can't take your eyes off it. No, I'll watch it. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right. Um, what, one last question uh, for yep. the weightlifting house as a company. Where do you guys see yourselves going in the future? Um, so I've got like specific one year, three year, five year, 10 year goals in all aspects of the business. So in terms of like the number of products we're selling, how many people we employ, um, how many competitions we're going to, uh, what our revenue is, all of these sorts of things. But like as a general overview, um, I want it to be where we have several media teams who are basically constantly traveling to not just the competitions, but training halls around the world, getting access to go into team Georgia, team China, team Columbia, creating documentaries, just really high level weightlifting content. Uh, we're then selling basically everything that you would need if you wanted to have a weightlifting house. So if you want to have your own gym or weightlifting house, it's like you can get platform bars, plates, um, everything you need to go on the walls. So like all of the posters, the wrist straps, straps, belts, every product you would basically need. Um, And then also to be providing the highest level of uh, education for coaches at the same time, which is something that like before starting weightlifting house, I was just, an obsessive weightlifting coach to some degree, like really loved the education side, read literally everything, couldn't get enough on the educational side of things, then did the podcast and learned more from coaches. And so being able to, to now pay coaches to teach other coaches, which we've been able to do last year, I've really enjoyed. So I want to do more of that, but make it better somehow. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot more of the same, but it's so much more within each aspect of weightlifting that we're doing it's just high level content 
um, way larger product range, hiring way more people, um, just being the go-to place. If you're in weightlifting and you want literally anything, um, then come into Weightlifting House. Yeah, great answer. Thank you. Sweet. Uh, <laughs> um, okay, so we discussed the company. Um, I want to get your take on uh, the sport of weightlifting, uh, where it's headed. Um, there's been some news released about weightlifting in the Olympics. There's a, there's a quick freak out by everyone. Can yeah. you give the audience uh, a rundown of what that news was and uh, what that means for the future of not only just the sport of weightlifting, but uh, weightlifting's uh, future in the Olympics? Yeah, so very sort of macro view, weightlifting has been relatively corrupt as a sport for a few decades. Um, lots of money passing, I think it's the same in a lot of sports, but it's become a lot more public of weightlifting at least recently. A lot of money passing under the table between hands to allow athletes to get away with some taking drugs, some not, or if you don't give us this amount of money, we'll pop that lifter that was competing hot you know, at this competition, blah, blah, blah. So it, it wasn't a very um, healthy structure to have as a governing body. Uh, and that sort of came to light a few years ago with the McLaren report where Rich McLaren, who was a guy who went undercover and, you know, found out that the Russians were being uh, not so honest about things uh, in the Olympics also. He did a, um, what do you call it? Um, he basically investigated the whole thing. Um, and then produced a report that's explained exactly what's going on. The IOC, International Olympic Committee, they found out about it. Uh, and they basically said to weightlifting, you can stay in the Olympics, but there are some things you have to change. You need to re-elect. Uh, you need to change the constitution. Basically, everything, a, a lot of stuff needs to change. Um, and the people who are in charge of weightlifting, this is where it's still a problem now. The people who are in charge of weightlifting are basically playing a game of chicken with the IOC where they think we're not really going to get kicked out and I'm making good money here. And uh, not only am I being paid by the IWF, but also other countries are paying me to make sure that their athletes can continue to take drugs or we're not going to lose medals retroactively and that sort of thing. And so they don't want to step down, but everybody in the sport loathes them and wants them to step down and, you know, hates everything about what they're doing to the sport. So we all want them to step down. And then the IOC will say, cool, you're welcome to come back into the Olympics, but they're not yet doing it. And every time there's an election, they delay it. So most recently, uh, the IWF hired private investigators to come and just check the eligibility of everybody who wanted to run for the board. And it was something like, it was either 70 of them or 70% of them were described by the private investigators as unfit due to, you know, it could have been previous criminal activity. It could have been, embezzlement fraud whatever it whatever you know um and so obviously the people on the board were like well we don't like the outcome of this because it means that we can't rerun so we're gonna scrap that whole investigation and delay the whole thing another six months and when we said that we were doing that that was when the ioc finally said we're taking you off the list of sports in 2028 la for the olympics you're not gone for good but you're not on the list Here's a pathway that you can follow to get back on it. So right now we're just trying to work out, are we going to follow that pathway or are the people, the powers that be in the IWF going to do what they have been doing for the last 40 years, continue to think for themselves and, um, and get us kicked out for good. So we don't know. Bold prediction. How's that going to go? And uh, what do you think? 
I'm a, I'm an eternal optimist. Always have been. Always will be. I think we'll be okay. But also, it's not like a ninety ten thing. It's like there's a very good chance that we won't be okay. A lot of people don't think we will be. I think that we will, just because I think, and if this is uh, very naive, things always work out in the end, which absolutely, if you look at history, is not the truth. But um, <laughs> I, I think we'll be okay. I think certainly weightlifting as a hobbyist sport and therefore weightlifting house will be fine because weightlifting is far more than an Olympic sport in you know where you are and where I am. I think it will die out in a lot of countries that receive funding purely from the government for the Olympics. Like that's not going to continue. If, if sport's not in the Olympics, the money's not going to come through, the sport won't be funded. But like us lot as weightlifters, we're not being paid. We're not doing it because we think we're going to go to the Olympics. We do it because our lives are so, you know, easy and meaningless during the day that we need something that's difficult and challenging to do in the evening. And so we'll continue doing it. But I think like the highest level of performance might drop, but federations will crop up, remain, and, and people will continue to lift. All right. Well, there it is. Um, awesome. So that's the prediction. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> Hey guys, that was um, a talk with Seb Osterwitz from Weightlifting House. Seb, you want to give him a plug real quick? Where can they find you? Uh, weightliftinghouse.com, Weightlifting House Instagram, Weightlifting House YouTube. That's, that's it. Awesome. All right, well, that does it with our talk with Seb from Weightlifting House. Seb, thanks for coming on. Um, and everyone, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. See you in a bit. Thanks for having me.